Hiya, thanks for tuning in to this week's Zonal Marking Podcast, which is brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ali Maxwell, and alongside me, Michael Cox. Now, Michael, as ever, we've tried to find a topic of discussion that this week focuses on both an interesting team, but one that's very much linked to their manager. Could you explain to the listener what we're talking about this week, please? Yeah, we're focusing on Sheffield United, which is arguably long overdue, considering uh, both their league position, seventh in the league, um, and also the way they play. Obviously, they got a lot of rave reviews for their championship performances and their uh, slightly daring tactics. So it's been great to observe them not just sticking to their principles, but you know, doing so well in the Premier League. They definitely tick all of the ZM pod boxes. And on to talk about Chris Wilder's Sheffield United with us is Jay Sosick. Now, some of you listening will know Jay from Twitter and you'll know him by his pseudonym Blades Analytic, where on Twitter he comments on all things analytics. It looks from the name like he focuses on blades, but actually Jay is working in football, in recruitment for Peterborough United and also for Market Insights, which is a football consultancy service specialising in player recruitment. But for the sake of today, he's a massive bladesman as well. Jay, welcome to the pod. Uh, you got that the wrong way around. It's bladesman always first, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Spot on. Okay, good start, Jay. Well, we're going to start by coming to you on a bit of Chris Wilder background pre-Sheffield United. For many football fans who focus on the top tier of football, English and European. This season is our first introduction of Chris Wilder. But of course, both as a player and a manager, he's got a rich history in the English game. I think everyone by now knows that he's a massive Sheffield United fan like yourself. But it's not like he was always anointed for the role as manager, was he? Because I I think I'm right in saying for his whole managerial career, he'd always been actually at a lower level to Blades. Yeah, absolutely. I think he's had a he's he's probably career before the last three years was reminiscent of that of hundreds of thousands of others out there with the standard British names and the standard British careers that buzz around League Two, League One, and that you you know you hear great stories of, but you never really see in the limelight. Um, he worked his way up through Sunday League in the Sheffield uh, Medal Hall League, um, and had a team that was basically unbeaten and was fantastic, and he used to. The stories about how he used to pick the team in the nightclub the day before, and uh, the, the, those who went home early were definitely on the bench the next day. He wanted the guys out till four in the morning. They were the starters, um, and he worked his way up through non-league. Alfreton Town, uh, Halifax Town was his first really kind of bigger club shot. If you remember, a kind of decade ago, Halifax were actually buzzing around the, the base of the football league. Um, and then he moved into kind of football league jobs. So he took Oxford into the football league, which I'm, I know you'll be aware of, Ali. Mm. Um, and then had them kind of pushing playoffs in what is now League Two, um, and then made a, a a huge decision really to leave Oxford um, at that time when Oxford were kind of a, a top ten, top six club to go to Northampton, who were pretty much nearly dead and buried, frankly. Um, which I, I'm sure we'll come on to, but uh, that, that decision kind of just about paid off. It was, I think squeaky bum time would be the phrase you know, some may use at certain periods of that season. But since then, I don't think there's any question that there's there's not many apart from kind of your peps and Guardia Klops that have uh, had more success than him. Yeah, after fighting relegation and surviving 
relegation. In the 2015-16 season, Northampton lost only one league game from the 20th of October onwards. They won League Two at a canter with 99 points. And that got him on the radar of his boyhood club, Sheffield United, where he spent two playing spells as well. Jay, what sort of shape were Sheffield United in when Wilder was appointed after this amazing job with Northampton Town? United had been in League One, I think, at that stage for five seasons and it kind of no one had really succeeded in getting back to where they felt like they belonged at a second-tier level at the very least. Yeah, that's right. So, so kind of standard Sheffield United story, really. We, we constantly make the playoffs and then constantly get beat in the semi-final <laughs> or final. Um, but the, the actual season before Chris came in, we'd had Nigel Atkins as manager, and I think it's it's probably our lowest, certainly our lowest finish in my lifetime, probably our lowest finish for a very long time. I think we finished twelfth in in League One, and we were shocking to be quite frank. There was a complete disconnect between the players and the fans. I know you hear that, and often points on the board is that dis- that connection, isn't it? You know, it's a bit sometimes of a narrative kind of phrase, but it really was that the fans and players just disliked each other. They didn't like playing at home. We didn't like them. The, the set of players that we had, the, you know, the whole pride in the shirt and the, the fight, the steel, if you will, from the Steel City. We expect that as Sheffield United fans, and it just wasn't there. And uh, it, it was probably the lowest ebb I've ever known Sheffield United in my lifetime. Having suffered relegations previously, I've never seen the club on its backside more, really. Um, and that's that's when Chris came in. I guess you could argue perhaps a good time because it couldn't get any worse although it did at the beginning which we'll go on to <laughs> so in some ways a popular appointment that affinity with the club his boyhood club and from the area but also I can imagine for some fans ambitious fans this is a manager that hadn't managed at this level or, or a club of this size before in his managerial career so talk me through the beginning of his tenure did things go well right from the start no, no, not, not at all. Um, you're right, there was actually a lot of fans kind of, because there was such apathy set in the fan base, there was a lot of dissenting fans saying, you know, yeah, he, he's just, we've had Blades before, we've had Neil Warnock, we've had Mickey Adams as managers, and they were just saying, he's just another one of these, you know, he's, he's going to make us run a little bit, he'll make us kick it long, he'll make us fight, but ultimately, we're probably not, he's not what we need, he's not going to take us up. Um, and that summer, Chris came straight in and placed about 10, 12 players on the transfer list. Um, it was quite stormy, to say the least. Uh, a lot of the experienced players had, had basically stayed too long uh, and their welcome was was outstayed in Chris's eyes. Um, so he brought a, a raft of players in, uh, most of which still play for us in the Premier League. Um, and he also tried to shift a raft of players out. Some of those actually fought for the club and actually cemented their place, such as Paul Coots, who, who became an absolute integral cog in, in where we are now. Um, but he was actually on the transfer list when, when Chris first came in. But just to go to the first few games, we actually didn't win a single game in his first four. Um, I, I remember being at Bolton away of the first game of that season. We actually played decent football, but we lost 1-0. Um, and the next few games, we just, we just didn't have any real structure, any real shape. Um, all the things that you would associate with us now, we didn't have. Um, you know, we still had good players in that league. We still had Billy Sharp. We had John Fleck. Uh, you know, we had Jack O'Connell starting at left centre back in a, in a back four, who is now absolutely key to us as a back three. But frankly, he was quite awful for the first four games. Uh, he was making errors left, right, and centre, and, and it was just a very stormy time. Michael, thankfully, after that 
tough start. They do end up getting their act together and it's promotion from League One to the Championship at the first time of asking and Wilder celebrates wildly with the whole city or at least the red half of the city. And in the first season back in the Championship, we start to see the style developing, a system of football developing uh, being developed by Chris Wilder and his assistant, Alan Neil, And we start to see a few key features of that game that we're now seeing in the Premier League a few years later. Yeah, it was really exciting, actually, the first time I kind of heard about it. I hadn't seen too much of Sheffield United in League One, to be honest. But, you know, once uh, I heard a few people talking about this system they were using, it was just nice to hear of this innovative tactic that was taking place in uh, the lower leagues, if you can call it that, rather than somewhere in Europe or, you know, a Champions League, Europa League side. Um, and yeah, it, I mean, it, it took a lot of us by surprise by those of us. I mean, those who kind of, you know, like analysing the tactics and, and watching what different teams are doing, because Chris Wilder, as, as Jay mentioned, really came out of nowhere, came out through the, the non-league system. And um, it wasn't just the fact they were doing something so unusual, it was the fact they were doing it so fluently and, and without leaving themselves exposed in the way that you kind of expected when you heard about this system on paper. Yeah, so the phrase that we have to use is overlapping centre-backs. And I think everyone's heard that phrase now probably too many times. But Michael, just explain what that means practically and what effect it has. What's the benefit when it works well? Yeah, it's funny you say that about it being used too many times because I was asked to write an article about Sheffield United in November, I think, and my editor very specifically said, you can't just focus on the overlapping centre-backs. I'm <laughs> bored of them. Um, and I think the fact that you know someone was bored of the phrase overlapping centre-backs three months into the new campaign sums up how almost established they made that tactic work. But yeah, I mean, from what I gather, it was initially kind of used primarily against teams that were playing a, a deep block against Sheffield United when they kind of needed to push extra men forward on the overlap to to just create extra attackers in the final third. But, you know, the first few times I watched it, I didn't see them use it in that scenario. I saw them use it almost on counterattacks when they won the ball really quickly. Um, and yeah, the, the two players who do it, I think in particular Jack O'Connell last season at the start of this season, who plays on the left, who's got the physique of a, a natural centre-back, but also an incredibly good crosser of the ball with his left foot. Um, it really throws the opposition into doubt. And I think that there's a a big question that hasn't really been answered, how you deal with that, whether it's forwards who track back, whether it's the midfield players who take over. Um, and, you know, as I'm sure we'll come on to later, I think it's fair to say that while that is the most eye-catching part of Sheffield United's approach, it's probably just one part of a wider approach, which is really all about, you know, overloading the opposition down the flanks. And it's not just the centre-backs who pop up in unusual situations. Now, here on the Zonal Marking podcast, we are bang up to date with tactical trends, but not always to the same extent when it comes to fashion trends. The good news is that this athletic podcast is brought to you in association with Stitch Fix, which is an online personal styling service that takes the hard work out of dressing well. To get started, go to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic. From there, you fill in a style quiz and tell them all about your personal style, budget, size, shape, and all the measurements that you didn't know existed. A personal stylist then sends you five items of clothing, handpicked especially for you from a selection of brands. You try on everything at home and style it out with other items from your wardrobe. 
and then pay for what you love and send back the rest. For the stylist's time, you pay a charge of just £10, which is deducted from the cost of anything you decide to buy. So you try before you buy, at home, delivery and returns are free both ways, and you don't need a subscription to sign up. Stitch Fix allows you to save time, because they do the shopping for you, to discover new styles, because they've got a broad selection of different styles and brands, and to enjoy top styling tips as well. These are experts that give you ideas on how to wear the items they pick out for you. Get started with Stitch Fix today and support our podcast by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic. That's S-T-I-T-C-H-F-I-X dot co dot uk forward slash athletic. Jay, would you say from having followed this team and the development tactically of it for the last few years that, as Michael says, overlapping centre-backs is one part of an overarching philosophy where the priority is overloads. Would that be a key phrase at this point to use? I think that's probably the more key phrase than the overlapping centre-backs, to be honest. Um, I loved Michael's article because it touched on and numerous things that as fans we see every week, but no one else seems to focus on. Um, for example, the wide central midfielders. Uh, I mean, I mean, people know them as John Fleck and, and John Lundstrom this year. It's been others in other years, but just, just take John Fleck because he's done it since League One. He's so comfortable playing hugging the touchline, almost like a left winger, um, but he has the technical ability of a, of a central midfielder and he's, he's kind of balls in, in behind, um, playing the angled passes into the box and his crossing ability are, are really unique. I think that's the way I'd sum up a lot of the players in this system. They probably wouldn't work in many other systems, but they're, they have such unique styles that they fit this system perfectly. Um, and I think the overloads is exactly what we look for. We look for pockets of space where we can get 2v1s or 3v2s. Uh, and really, it doesn't then come down to the individual. It comes down to the set patterns. And I think that's where we will back ourselves to take on anyone in that kind of we work harder at what we do than you type mentality. One thing I found interesting, Jay, that I'd like to pick your brains on is I know that you're a, an analytics disciple and have been for a few years now at, at the forefront of it in many ways. Uh, and certainly in terms of its coverage online, um, at a time where many teams and the general, well, football in general, certainly at the top level, has moved away from crossing, certainly aerial crossing, to to quite a large extent. Uh, Sheffield United, it feels like, are, have almost gone the other way under Chris Wilder and with the overlapping centre-backs, with the wide uh, central midfield players causing these overloads and delivering balls from out wide. They've almost gone the other way. Yeah, and we've been like that for a while. I think we were probably second behind Aston Villa um, for crosses per game in the Championship. We're definitely up there this year. But then again, so are Liverpool. It works for them. Um, I think probably you're right. But then the flip side of that is we actually don't take a lot of shots. Um, in the Championship, we were certainly quite, I would say, famous. It was a trait that we do not shoot at all and we certainly don't shoot outside of the box all of our shots are created within the penalty box or even in the championship the six yard box basically we're looking for little cutbacks little little kind of dinks from the touchline to the far post uh, and that's because our strikers or our main goal threat in Billy Sharp is predominantly a poacher he's not going to want in behind passes he doesn't want through balls he wants balls in the penalty area where his, his slight moments of clever movement can create some space um, I, I think that's right yes we do cross a lot because we play with a lot of width and Premier League defences play extremely narrow to try and guard those danger zones if you will in, in the 6 and 18 yard box but we've still found a way this year in the league to be kind of exceptionally good at creating good chances if not 
quantifying a lot of them. Um, so although we are a high crossing team, which isn't always the most efficient, we pick up a lot of second balls from that. We put a lot of pressure on you from that and pin you in. And that's when we tend to create our best moments. We've talked about the development of this style and, and why focusing on the overlapping centre-back slightly misses the point. We're going to go in more depth into some of the individual roles and players later on in the podcast. But Michael, it's a good time to mention Alan Nil, who is Chris Wilder's assistant manager, because he's A, a really interesting assistant manager, and B, they have quite the interesting history between the two of them. Yeah, I think this is a really fascinating part of uh, the development of, of the side and the background of the side. I mean, a lot of people probably don't know that Wilder used to be Nil's assistant at Berry, So it was the other way around. Nil was in charge. Wilder was, was second in command. That's obviously changed. It's completely flipped in terms of who's in charge. But I think what hasn't changed is their roles. You know, Nil is very much the coach. He's the training ground man, the details man. Um a bit of a, you know, by the standards of football managers is maybe a more, you know, slightly geeky technical guy. And Wilder is, as we know, a bit more of a, you know, imposing, dominating figure, probably better at communicating his ideas to a large group of uh, people, probably better in front of the media. But they very much work as a double act. I mean, as, as I'm sure Jay will be uh, able to perform if uh, we request it. The Sheffield United fans chant their two names together, which I think is a really nice touch. And I can't remember ever hearing that um, from any other fan base, but it, it kind of goes to show that they acknowledge that this is a double act. And, um, you know, maybe we can we can forget sometimes that the roles of manager and assistant, they can vary massively between clubs. I mean, this is going back a long time now, but when Blackburn won the league under Kenny Dalglish, it was widely acknowledged that Dalglish really didn't do that much aside from giving the team talks and the half-time talk. And it was Ray Harford who was taking the, you know, all the training ground drills, basically doing the tactics. Um, you look at some more of the the modern examples, I think Frank Lampard and Jody Morris, it's, it's widely acknowledged that Morris has more coaching expertise and more experience than Lampard. Lampard obviously is the much better front man. So you do get these double acts throughout football. And, you know, sometimes whether you're the manager or the assistant, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter. You, uh, you can certainly play your role. Jay, I'm not going to ask you to sing the song, but just another <laughs> word on Alan Nil. He gets a lot of credit for what he does on the training ground. And one of the main ways that we see that, uh, as well as the development of this unusual and very effective playing style, uh, is with set pieces. I believe I'm right in saying, because I've read a couple of articles on it online, that Alan Neal is considered one of, uh, well, he, he certainly was in the EFL, considered uh, something of a set piece guru, an innovator. He absolutely is, or was. Um, probably not this year for us, actually. It's probably one of our weakest points, but he he definitely, I think Michael's nailed actually the, re the relationship and the balance between the workloads probably of what they both do. You know, they, they both can step into each other's world. Chris can do the tactics and, and shape and, and Alan as an ex-manager can do the kind of motivational, the cohesion uh, and communicating the message, but their, their strengths lie in what they do uh, and their, their strengths to combine together make quite a force. Um, Alan is definitely one for the shape, uh, for the detail, for the opposition type analysis. How do we tweak all our way of playing, um, you know, to maximise our, our, our strengths against the opposition and set pieces is a huge part of that. I mean, some of the kind of videos you can find on Twitter of, of Alan Neal's set pieces are quite legendary, actually. Um, and they've been copied at the top level. So fair play to Alan. He, he's a, he is a good, good good man. He's a good man. But the fans, as Michael said, love him. They absolutely love Alan Neal. This is not about just Chris Wilder. It is Chris Wilder and Alan Neal. Uh, and we acknowledge that without Alan, this journey may not have happened. 
reminds me a lot of Michael and I on this podcast, actually. I, I can <laughs> leave it up to you to decide who's who. Uh, <laughs> Coxie, talk me through some key goals from the championship. We haven't moved up to the Premier League yet. From, the, from their championship success last year, automatic promotion in second place behind Norwich. What were the examples that you found that, re- that, that others could go and find to really define this style of play that we're talking about? Yeah, one that I liked in particular was in a 2-0 win at Reading. Uh, it was the first goal, I think relatively late, about 10 minutes to go. And I thought it was a classic example of how Sheffield United play in the sense that they got three players out on the right flank. Uh, I think McGoldrick, Duffy and Bulldog created what they probably hoped was going to be a three against two situation. Reading were wise to that, pushed three men out to defend against them. And then you had Basham on the overlap, who comes at the last minute, no one there to track him. Reading's players kind of looking around, working out, you know, where's he come from, who's meant to be marking him. Um, and by the time they've they finished thinking about that, he's crossed for, for Billy Sharp to turn home at the far post. And, you know, I guess that's the classic example because, OK, it was an overlapping centre-back, if you want to call it that. But it was really about the fact that they had four players out there. They could have come from central midfield. They could have come from up front. They could have been the wing-backs. But it's just those overloads in wide positions. It's almost like a one-upmanship. However many the opposition push out there, Sheffield United managed to uh, to get one extra player. Yeah, it's always quite the sight when you see exactly what you've described. Basham galloping forward. He's slightly ungainly with his gate, if you will, and <laughs> perhaps also compared to O'Connell, the left centre-back, who looks very comfortable on the ball and clearly has great technical ability in his left foot. Basham, he, he's such an interesting player, isn't he, Jay? I mean, this is a guy who has played the majority of his career, again, in the lower leagues, not always had a particularly defined position, just known as someone who would do a job for you basically anywhere he was asked, a sort of proper 7 out of 10 guy and, and, and now still so important to, uh, to Sheffield United and this, in this incredible system. Yeah, he's like the ultimate football version of a night watchman. Um, he, he just he just <laughs> comes in and, and, and he came in anywhere where there was a bad spell. You just put Bash there uh, before Chris came. Uh, he, he was kind of a... I mean, Ali, you'll know him from his days at Blackpool, uh, coming through at Newcastle. He's kind of a centre-mid, centre-back, kind of hybrid, you know, wherever you wanted him to be. Not quite good enough at centre-back. Um, energetic and powerful, but not quite good enough on the ball at centre-mid. So when Chris first came in, uh, Chris Basham was actually one of the ones who was probably heading out the door. Um, but but the one thing Bash is, uh, and anyone can see this, from, you know, you don't need to know anything behind the scenes, is Chris Basham is the hardest working man in football, without doubt. Um the guy just whatever role that any manager has ever given him he gives it a hundred percent effort and gives anything that he can so it's just applying his very unusual skill set and he does have some strengths in the right way um, and if we kind of flip back quickly to that league one season when we first went to the the three five two or the three four one two Chris Basham was a midfielder he wasn't the right centre back he is now and it's only when we moved Bash there that we actually started to see the overlapping centre-backs because of his skill set. He can carry the ball really well. He's quite strong. He's got an absolute engine on him. And he's quite comfortable with the ball at his feet for a defender anywhere on the pitch. So, again, it's another example of probably having a player who most managers would disregard, but just finding a way to use their unique skill set. Brilliant interview with Chris Basham. Went up on the athletic site by Adam Crafton uh, on August the 4th. So if you want to know more about his amazing backstory, the title, I went from Newcastle trainee to serving Nicky Butt at McDonald's. Now for the Premier League. <laughs> yeah, and Basham's played in every game so far for Sheffield United. Uh, Michael, 
you're the tactical historian amongst us. Uh, overlapping centre-backs, this uh, overloads in wide areas using the central defenders. Is this the first time we've ever seen this? Can you think of any other examples? No, I can't think of any real specific direct comparisons. I mean, I can think of sides who have attempted to do various similar things. I mean, you look at the way Ajax played in the Champions League last year. That was very much about getting overloads in wide positions with usually with the central midfielders going across or even the wingers crossing flanks, usually not the centre-backs involved. Um, it also makes me think a little bit of Marcelo Bielsa's Chile, who were just very attacking and would push the wide players in the front three forward. But again, tended to be into central positions, almost pockets of space rather than out wide. And indeed, when Bielsa faced Chris Wilder last year, he was very complimentary and said, uh, you know, these are kind of ideas that I would like to incorporate into my side, but I've never really figured out how to do it. So, yeah, I mean, as uh, as we mentioned earlier, maybe there is too much focus on the overlapping centre-backs, but when it's something you just can't recall anyone else doing, uh, certainly in, in top-flight history, um, it's inevitable they're just going to get so much attention. Jay, uh, an interesting thing to analyse for any promoted team from Championship to Premier League and the huge boost in revenue that comes with it is summer recruitment approaching the transfer market for your first Premier League season up from the Championship. How did Sheffield United go about it this summer with such a specific style of play and with a, a core of a squad that have been through two leagues already with Chris Wilder, a man who, who really does prioritise character almost above anything else? Yeah, you've nailed it. Um, we went about it with a very clear style and direction, um, which was to to recruit kind of areas of the squad where you would say maybe maybe weakest or maybe uh, is the oldest, if you will. So up front, we had two 30-something strikers in Billy Sharp and David McGoldrick. So we needed younger legs. Uh, Chris and Alan understood that the way we played in pinning teams in the final third, that, that wasn't going to happen as much in the Premier League. So we probably needed some pace because we had none uh, to kind of have at least a transition and a counter-attack threat. So hence the least move set signing. But predominantly, our, our strategy was to sign players British-based, predominantly from the championship, take the pick of the best of the championship and, and basically see if they can sink or swim at the Premier League level. But knowing that we have a very strong and sturdy dressing room and, and system of play to fall back on if they didn't quite make it. The fact that you'd say none of the summer signings have been the absolute key members of the squad in the Premier League. I'm looking at McBurney, who's played just over half of the minutes available up front. Lise Mousset as you mentioned, had a really good spell, just played over just 1,000 minutes. You've got the likes of Besic and Freeman, Osborne, uh, and of course, Callum Robinson, who's already back in the championship out on loan. Does that, especially as someone like yourself who works in recruitment in football for other clubs, is that something you'd look at and say, we didn't quite get this right or not such a concern? Um, probably 50-50. I mean, I think it, it's difficult for any promoted team coming up, isn't it? Um, you know, not, not to draw comparisons of who was better or worse, but Aston Villa's recruitment, you, you look at Norwich, who... who maybe because of finances, but the way they went down the model of not really signing anyone and that, that's not really worked either. Um, so it, it's really hard to get that balance right. I think ultimately they the guys knew that if we were going to stay up, and, and fa as fans, we certainly knew if we were going to stay up, it was going to be because of the guys that were already in the dressing room. Um, you know, 
we didn't have a lot of money. We had an ownership battle going on over the summer. So the, the, the direction and the long-term direction of the club was, was unclear. So there wasn't a hefty budget. Um, so there was a lot of problems to solve infrastructure-wise as well. And I, I just think that what they did was, was the right thing. I think players that they've signed can probably go on and grow into seasons in future or at least become a valuable asset that we'll make money from in future. That's one thing Chris does well. Even if signings fail, he, he tends to turn them around for profit. Um, Callum Robertson, probably a prime example. Um, you know, he, He'll either come back into the squad and, and play a part next year or we'll sell him for profit in the summer. Um, but I, I just think, yeah, it, it hasn't quite worked but it, it, it's such a double-edged sword, isn't it? Trying to get that Premier League recruitment right. You could go out and sign all the best players, but do they fit in the style of play, the dressing room? So I think they gambled on the guys they had already and that gamble's paid off. And Michael, what did you notice having watched a lot of their games in the Championship versus how they've approached things tactically in the Premier League this season? Obviously, playing against a higher quality of opponent. What changes did Chris Wilder make? Yeah, I mean, there's been a slight change of system. Last year, they tended to play with a number 10 behind the front two. Uh, usually Mark Duffy, who's now out on loan, actually, in Holland, playing under Alan Pardew, another great tactical innovator over there. <laughs> um, and yeah, immediately they changed things. It was, I think, even on the opening day, I was down at Bournemouth to cover their game uh, there, which was a one-all draw. And they played a 3-5-2 with uh, Norwood and Fleck and Lundstrom in midfield. And yeah, that was obviously something they thought about over the summer. They played it throughout pre-season and said, yeah, we we probably need to be a little bit more solid in the centre midfield, try and compete a little bit more in that area. Um, but it's worked really well for them. I mean, the, the change in system, I think, has, has brought something different to the party. Lundstrom, who I know wasn't a, a particular you know, key player in, in the championship season, was excellent in the first few weeks, both with his passing and is is popping up in the in the penalty box so yeah it was a slight change of system but I don't think really a, a change in the overall idea yeah Jay what do you think they gained and potentially lost as well just pulling that number 10 back and, and adding that extra body in the centre of midfield if you'd seen us last year or if you hadn't uh, you know quick explanation of the number 10 that Michael spoke about Mark Duffy is a very good technical player, but he's he's five foot seven, five foot eight, uh, mid thirties, uh, and he's certainly not going to last more than seventy minutes. And he's not much of a runner. So by taking him out and putting you know John Lundstrom in early twenties, an absolute engine, box to box, a really powerful frame. He's combative. He likes to press. He likes to tackle. He wins his duels, and he's got two great feet actually, and a, a very underrated range of passing. So what we've done is added a box to box midfielder, someone who can get beyond the strikers, someone who can get in the box for this for this extra crossing that we seem to. To be going down the avenue of and it just means that we play wider and stretch the pitch more as well so I think the hope was that takes out the kind of opposition key central players because they're having to do defensive work out wide rather than be waiting um, for kind of triggers to, to position when they can transition so I think what we've gained far takes out what we've lost um, you know there's not a lot of games we're going to dominate the ball in so having that extra legs in midfield is very key yeah, and Michael Lundstrom's role is fairly easily defined by Jay there. What about Fleck and Norwood, generally the other two midfielders in the squad? How do you define their roles? I think we've seen Fleck pushing forward a little bit more into central positions on the edge of the box. He's got into the box to score goals. Um, Norwood has been the one who I've just been really impressed by. Uh, from that opening day, I thought his intelligence in finding pockets of space just behind the other two central midfielders was really a, a key part of how Sheffield United played. His passing range is sensational. He's another one of these players who can pop up uh, on the flanks, particularly the right, to swing in crosses, which you don't expect from 
you know, a deep midfielder. And also his his uh, his corners are just sensational, particularly the in-swinging ones from the left flank. I mean, twice this season against Everton and Palace, he's basically forced opponents into scoring own goals. Yeri Mina uh, and Guaita for, for Palace, the goalkeeper. Just these incredibly devilish in-swinging crosses that, uh, yeah, he's not credited with the goals, but it's almost like it's a little bit more than an assist when you're almost forcing defenders to turn into their own goal. Those of us who cover the EFL closely ended up calling Norwood the EFL cheat code last season because his promotion with Sheffield United last season was his third championship to Premier League promotion in a row. Firstly with Brighton and Hove Albion, then with Fulham where he was on loan and then Sheffield United where he was also initially on loan but now getting a well-deserved chance in the Premier League and thriving as well. Two wingbacks who are key to this system and also very well known in the EFL. Both Ender Stevens and George Bolduck have played in all four tiers of the English professional pyramid system now and taking their chance at Premier League level pretty well as well. Jay, talk me through the, the role that these wingbacks have in this team and how they're implementing them. They are absolute monsters. Um, the running that they get through, bear in mind that they've often got a hunking six-foot centre-back running around the side of them. It is unbelievable. Um, I think, you know, I've not seen the latest data. Uh, Tom Warville's your data guy, but he'll have it as well. But it, it, I think for a while, they were only second behind Robertson and Alexander-Arnold in terms of goal contributions, assist and goals. Um, George Baldock is, he's actually come on leaps and bounds this season. Last year, he was our best defender in terms of the fullback positions, but he wasn't the greatest going forward. He doesn't really have the ability to beat a man and his crossing was, was quite average. I think this year his crossing has come on a lot and his technical ability on the ball. I mean, if you guys can remember the goal away at Norwich, um, that kind of that was the, the the second goal that got us the 2-1 win there. It kind of ball comes to him on the edge of the box, turns the defender with his back to goal with a wonderful piece of skill and then nails one into the bottom corner. That that wouldn't have been done last year. So he's clearly worked hard on that. And then I think Ender Stevens on the left-hand side, I just, I mean, I'm a, I'm a biased fan, aren't I? But I just think he's one of the most <laughs> underrated left foots in the Premier League. He, he's just a sensational player on the ball. Um, I think there was a, the game away at Chelsea this season when I, you know Michael might go on to talk about we were we were really struggling actually and the ball the tactic just became give it Ender and see what he can do almost um, because he was the only one on the pitch who seemed comfortable running at the opposition and it's from his side that we actually got back in the game um, and he, he can just take the ball anywhere he can drive forward with it he's got a great cross a good shot the guys are just playing exceptionally well um, and they are consistent monsters they really are couple of really cultured left foots in this team it's fair to say which is a, a, a great treat for fans and neutrals alike uh, Michael we've got to talk about David McGoldrick as well mostly positively but also he is at the top of quite an unfortunate stat I believe yeah he still hasn't got off the mark in the Premier League um, which for a centre forward is obviously not a particularly desirable quality um, I mean you wrote about this back in January yeah. At which stage he had racked up 6.2 expected goals, but not a real one. Yeah, so he has um, he has missed some bad chances. I mean, there's been an open goal in particular when he rounded the goalkeeper and managed to put it into the side netting. But, I mean, despite that, I think he's been maybe the most interesting player in this system. Um, I mean, I'm amazed we're talking about David McGoldrick as being such a tactically innovative player. You know, someone who you know, spent most of his career being a decent enough player in the championship um he's now 32 he's certainly not a youngster but he's 
he's just his understanding of this system is so good. He knows when to overload midfield. He knows when to draw wide and create overloads out wide. I think he's just the key kind of unheralded part of so many passing moves that usually end with a, a dangerous cross or a ball into the box. Um, look, he, he's playing up front. You, you would like to think that he would uh, score more goals if we played this season again. But I think despite that, you know, the fact that he's starting the vast majority of games when he's fit shows that Chris Wilder knows how valuable he is to the team. Jay, I know you've got a lot of love for the man they call Didzy. <laughs> yeah, we, we, the fan base love him as well. There's still times where we'll, we'll draw a game or lose a game. And, and as Michael says, you know, it does come out of the conversation of, do we need to replace him? Do we need to take him out of the team? Because he, you know he's just not a goal scorer. Um, but I think we've almost learned to love that and live with it because of everything else that he brings. We are simply a better team. Uh, with him on the pitch that's both statistically and tactically um, and I, I think it reiterates that point of while they're taking a player considered a bit of a journeyman um, maybe even injury prone I think it's fair to say and just taking that unique skill set that McGoldrick has his, his technical ability his touch his understanding of space and movement and basically putting that in this system and saying I don't care what you don't do I care what you do do and I think that's uh that's very much what Chris Wilder does with a lot of these plays. He doesn't look at the negatives of them. He looks at the positives. And we we are a fantastic team when David McGoldrick plays. The way he floats out to left back to pick up the ball so that Jack O'Connell can bomb on. He's completely comfortable. And he's also actually extremely hardworking off the ball. Um, we are a very hardworking side out of possession. And he's kind of one of the leaders of that in terms of pressing actions as well. So, yeah, there's a lot of love for David McGoldrick. Harry's sponsors Zonal Marking, a podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. Jeff and Andy knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. And now, by taking less profit, Harry's offers great quality products for a fair price. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. Weighted ergonomic handle, check. Five precision-engineered blades, check. A rich, lathering shave gel and a travel blade cover as well. As a listener of Zonal Marking, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for just £3.95. Support this podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com forward slash zonal right now. That's harrys.com forward slash zonal. I want to ask both of you about some key games in the Premier League this season. Sheffield United, as we record, with the season suspended in seventh position with 10 games to go ahead of Tottenham Hotspur and just having an unbelievable campaign. Some of the individual games that have made up this incredible return to the Premier League. Michael, what's caught your eye the most? Well, I guess the most memorable on a a personal basis, just because I was there, was that opening game um, away at Bournemouth, um, yeah, first day of the campaign, obviously the most anticipated game for Sheffield United fans in in quite a few years and just so <laughs> many of them down there on the south coast, incredibly nice day. Um, not all of them had tickets for the game, a lot of people just wanted to be part of it and uh, they played reasonably well, they're 1-0 down for most of the second half but then 
of all people, Billy Sharp comes off the bench, um, obviously Sheffield United hero for quite a few years to get the late equaliser. And just the celebrations in front of that, uh, you know, relatively small travelling contingent because Dean Court's such a such a small ground, not many room, uh, not much room for many away fans. But it was just a really great thing to be part of. And, you know, I was down there, you know, looking at the tactics and noting down all the times the centre-backs galloped forward. But it was also something different, you know. there was just, It was just obvious there was such a kind of you know, a bond between the players and, and the coaching staff and the fans. And, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a cliche, a bit of an old school thing, but that does count for a lot, you know, especially when there's a group of players, not many of whom have, have played in the Premier League before. It just seems a really good, you know, motivated and professional environment. And yeah, like I say, not necessarily a tactical thing, but it was just something that sticks in the memory as, you know, me thinking, OK, Sheffield United are going to be fun this season. Even warming the heart of Michael Cox. Now, that is a serious, <laughs> serious achievement. Jay, as a fan, what stands out most for you this season? Well, I've still got the bruises from Bournemouth away from tumbling down the stand. So that, that, that's definitely still a standout. Um, I think probably a couple that come straight to my mind is is Chelsea away. Um, we were 2-0 down half-time. We were poor, so poor in the first half, making defensive errors that you just don't associate with our guys and also really not calm on the ball. I think Michael pointing out Ollie Norwood is spot on in my eyes. I think Norwood is absolutely brilliant. Um, but even he was just so uncomposed in everything that he did. And it was kind of sink or swim time, really. I thought we might have come out on the second half in a bit of a hiding, but we actually got back into that game and drew 2-2 and could have even gone on to win it in the last few minutes. Um, I think beating Burnley at home was a sensational result. Um we were magnificent. We absolutely stormed through Burnley, like not many teams do. I think that's fair to say. You know, Burnley's kind of that game you, you mark down the calendar as a very tough game, even if you might get the points. And, and we just played through them like they were nothing. Um, and then I have to say that, that you know, it wasn't one that we won, but the Manchester United game was, was it was a, it was a mad game, but a good game, a three-three draw um, for, for for probably forty minutes. We absolutely played them off the pitch. Um, and it ultimately didn't count for three points. We, we had to scrap and get an Ollie McBurner equaliser in the last five. But the first 40 minutes of that game it is one of the most enjoyable I've ever had. We were just absolutely sensational. Um, even Chris Basham was trying back heels. So, you know, you know when times are good. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, Michael, talk to me about copycats. Because a lot of times when we've spoken about specific tactical systems or, uh, or individual teams' tactical systems... If they work, you tend to see people try and copy that fairly swiftly. Has that happened here with Sheffield United at all? No, I'm really struggling to find anyone that has, has tried anything comparable. I think part of that is because you do need a specific type of player in those positions. I think, as we mentioned earlier, O'Connell is a, a centre-back, but also someone with a, a real kind of natural left-footed delivery. Um, yeah, I, I haven't seen anything like it. Obviously, there's not too many sides playing a three-man defence in the Premier League this season. And you would say that, you know, the the roles of the centre-backs probably does depend on the fact that there's, there's three of them and you've got someone sweeping behind. But no, I haven't seen anyone do anything remotely comparable, to be honest. Jay, uh, is it fair to say that Michael hasn't watched every minute of every League One and League Two game this season? <laughs> I feel like in the EFL, don't get me wrong, you know them. no one's doing it to the same extent. But you can find them, can't you? You can find the copycats. 
You can, mate. Yeah, I know you'd bring this up. Um, <laughs> there has been there has been a um, there's been attempts by I think Sunderland and Ipswich. Fair to say, um, certainly Ipswich with a player that um, is actually quite interesting with Luke Wolfenden at right centre back, who's maybe one to listen, you know, and watch on for, for future times. They've tried it. I just think that it's not really, as Michael said, it's not about the overlapping centre backs. It's about numerical advantage and positional dominance. Um, that that's all it boils down to. So it's normally the top sides in those leagues. They're just basically saying to their players who normally sit back, just go forward, you know, create an extra man, commit extra men so that the defence has more to think about rather than just our standard shape. Um, but I, I'm not, I'm absolutely not buying it that anyone else has copycatted it well. <laughs> there we go. Right. You mentioned Burnley in the previous answer. Of course, we've covered Burnley on this very podcast a few weeks ago with Andy Jones having a look at how Sean Dyche does things down there. And during that podcast, we talked about Nick Pope and we talked about his battle for the England number one shirt now on hold, certainly for the moment at least. We'd spoken about Jordan Pickford of Everton and I think off the back of those two podcasts, you'd probably have to be siding with Nick Pope based on how we had discussed it with our various experts. But Dean Henderson's in the frame as well, Jay. I mean, Talk me through Henderson, who has played in League Two, League One, the Championship and the Premier League in consecutive seasons, I think. I mean, he is he's a wild card, but he's a serious option as well. He is one of the most talented goalkeepers I've ever seen and also one of the craziest blokes I've ever met. <laughs> um Dean Henderson is is a you know, is an archetypal goalkeeper where they say, you know, you have to be crazy to be a keeper. That, that that's that's Dean. He's fantastic. Um as a shot stopper, you know, Martin Dubravka, the Vincent Guaitas, they're all up there, aren't they? He's definitely up there in the Premier League in terms of that top three, that top five group. He makes saves that the winners points consistently. There was a save away at Norwich again earlier in the season. We were winning the game 2-1 the last five minutes. Um, and I think it was Todd Cantwell just bent one into the far corner and it, it was just a goal. It, it just looks like a goal and somehow Dean got his fingertips there. And it's not, you know, I think we all saw the triple save against Norwich at the last round of games that we, we were on. Um, he's just an ins- sensational young goalkeeper. I think there's a, there's always kind of like the Nick Pope, I, I listened to that pod and, and there is the distribution kind of arguments you can maybe level against Dean. He predominantly plays for Sheffield United. We do have a target man, so we do play longer passes from goal kicks. And his kicking isn't that kind of fluid pings out to the fullback or playing through lines like an Allison. It's very basic. That's not to say he won't improve in future. That's not to say he couldn't do it if asked, but it, it, he's asked to do a basic job, so he does. But in terms of keeping the ball out of the net, in terms of commanding of his area and giving his, his kind of back three or back four confidence, Dean is absolutely sensational. It, it's no surprise to me since Dean's been here, we've had the, the joint most clean sheets and no, most clean sheets in the championship. We've got the second best defensive record in the Premier League uh, and Dean is huge in that. And just lastly, back to recruitment, a topic of which you're something of an expert. We mentioned the summer recruitment and tried to analyse that. But in January, we saw a slight change of tact. And that really came in the form of Sanderberge, not Sanderberg, <laughs> as the fans uh, anointed him. Almost £20 million spent on the young Norwegian midfield player. Um, I suppose, Jay, being fairly safe in the knowledge that Sheffield United would be playing Premier League football for a second season at the very least, was this a clear change in, in strategy here? And how do you expect it to go moving forward? I don't think it was a change in strategy now. Um, I think it was a, 
a, a, I don't want to say a punt, but I think it was kind of a, it's a minimal risk. Um, they, they were clearly closely watching Sander. They, they've, they've said so since. And I think maybe the moves were going to be in the summer for Sander. Um, but because we, we kind of looked secure in the Premier League at that point, the opportunity arose. I think we thought, take him now, give him six months to adjust, a full pre-season, and then he's going to be good to go next year. Because it is a big adjustment from from the football he was playing um, in terms of the physicality. And he, he said so himself. He said he's never ran as much or as hard as he has in the Premier League. He, he feels tired every day. So it is a big change. I, I don't see us going into that European market too much. You know, I, I think we are broadening our horizons, but remember we were a League One club less than three years ago. So our scouting networks, our infrastructure isn't there yet. We can't do that. I still think we'll hit the best of British, the best of the championship, and the odd one from Europe will come in and, and it'll be kind of, can we climatise them? Can we keep the dressing room core ready so that those guys can come in and, and kind of have an opportunity just to ground themselves in slowly? Well, there we go. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I left the Burnley edition of this podcast telling myself it was long passes not long balls that was the key phrase to remember <laughs> i think off the back of this podcast it's overloads not overlaps when we're talking about sheffield united <laughs> uh, i feel like we've been through pretty much everything that we can in the space and the time that we have and that is a huge thanks to you jay sosick for joining us uh, blades analytic on twitter a big Blades fan, but also uh, you should definitely check out his work with Market Insights, the football consultancy service specialising in recruitment as well. Jay, really appreciate you joining us on the Zonal Marketing Podcast. No, it's a, it's a, it's a pleasure, Ali. You know I like speaking to you and, and to, to share some time with Coxie rather than listen to him is amazing. <laughs> it's something that I think every single week, Jay, every single week, what a treat to be on the airwaves with Michael, even in isolation. Coxie, we'll be back again next week, won't we? We will. Yeah, really enjoyed that. It was, uh, yeah, long overdue we had a look at Sheffield United. So, uh, yeah, really enjoyed that pod. Now, you've written about Sheffield United in a few different ways this season. They do have their own uh, dedicated writer on the athletic site, Richard Sutcliffe. Every Premier League club does, of course, a couple of EFL teams as well. And it's a huge stable of football writers and now podcasts as well since the last few months. Thanks to Jay and to Michael for joining me this week on the Zonal Marking Podcast and we'll be back again next week.